So on this episode, we're discussing a lot of different aspects of the cannabis and psychedelic industry. We'll talk a little bit about my investment fund, Eater Investments, and the different portfolio companies we have. And we'll also talk about my law firm, Mr. Cannabis Law, where we represent various cannabis and psychedelic companies. And then we'll also talk about some of the work that I'm doing at my nonprofit, Mr. Psychedelic Law, where we are working on legal reform for psychedelic medicines here in Florida. So make sure to tune in. Should be a good one. All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the NeuroFlex podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with us today, we have a very special guest, Dustin Robinson. Dustin is the founding partner of Mr. Cannabis Law, the co-founder of Mr. Psychedelic Law, and the managing principal for Eater. Um, Dustin is focused on cannabis and psychedelic industries. He's licensed in Florida as an attorney, a certified public accountant, and a real estate agent. He focuses his practice on providing legal, accounting, financial, and business consultation to various businesses operating in the hemp, marijuana, and psychedelic industries. And Dustin's uh, firm, Eater Investments, just closed their fundraising round for $20 million. So I know that's some big news that just uh, occurred. So congratulations on that, Dustin. Thank you very much. Yeah, very, very excited to uh, close that round in a pretty tough market. And uh, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Of course, of course. So I just want to start off by saying, you know, the my introduction to your work, um, you know, doing, I heard or saw on Instagram, some friends that were at the psychedelic panel series that you've been doing now um, at the Soho Beach House. And I just kind of wanted to hear um, you know, how that came about, what, what your intention and, and just, you know, what you were hoping to be able to bring to people by doing those, these, uh, these kind of monthly panels. Absolutely. So we started those about, um, I would say about 18 months ago. So we do them every month. We've done them at Miami, So House, Chicago. Uh, we've done the London Shoreditch House. Uh, we've done West Hollywood, Malibu. Uh, we did the downtown LA. So we've done a bunch of them. We're, you know, we we started them off in at the So House in Miami, and uh, we just got incredible interest there. Um, so we started to expand it to other So Houses, or they reached out to us and asked us to expand it. So we're actually in September going to also do the Amsterdam. So house, and then we're going to do another one at the London Shoreditch location. And because we had so much interest, we actually scaled it up. And now we're doing it um, at Club Space on a quarterly basis as well. Um, that way we could have, so has limited space. It's usually limited to about 100 people um, with Club Space. We're actually doing them uh probably have almost 500 people there. So a lot of interest right now in the space. The concept for the So House events is really just to raise awareness uh, and to really break stigma around mental health and psychedelic medicine. So we have various different panels every month from indigenous community panels to investor panels. Um, we just hit a lot of different topics and there's just a lot of interest within the industry. Uh, we started them, it, it's really, these are produced through one of our, our companies that we own through Eater Investments. So Eater Investments is my venture capital fund. We actually started our own incubator called Nucleus. Um, Nucleus owns various media data and technology assets. 
um, and puts together a lot of different events uh, through its various assets. And so really um, the SOHO uh, psychedelic series panels are really produced um, by the Nucleus team. Got it, got it. And, you know, in terms of, I guess I, I did want to talk about Nucleus and some of the other uh, companies that are involved in that, that ETER uh, fund. But first off, just, you know, I kind of wanted to talk about your background, just, you know, as, as a lawyer, just, you know, how did you sort of get interested in the cannabis and psychedelic space? And what was, what was sort of your journey into those spaces um, legally? Yeah, so uh, the, you know, I started off in cannabis. Um, prior to that, I was running a multi-state manufacturing company that I grew to about 50 million in revenue and sold my interest in that uh, several years ago and didn't know what I was going to do next. And I had some friends with a cannabis license that were doing a deal with another cannabis company. They needed some legal help. So basically decided I would help them for free, jumped into the transaction and really found it fascinating. It was much more complicated than I'd expected because of the various uh, cannabis aspects of the deal. And we were able to put that together successfully. I just started getting a lot of uh, referrals and, and calls to help with, you know, highly complex commercial transactions within the cannabis space. Uh, I started my legal career at a big law firm, Holland and Knight. Uh, we did a lot of complex commercial transactions. So I had the experience. And at the time I got into the cannabis industry, a lot of those big firms weren't getting involved in the cannabis space because it's federally legal. So found my niche in the cannabis space, essentially doing highly complex commercial transactions. Uh, firm has grown. We're now essentially full service for the cannabis industry. We have offices in Florida, uh, New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey. We're about to expand into California and Arizona. Um, and then it was in 2018, I read the, the book, How to Change Your Mind. Um, and I had never even taken a psychedelic compound at the time of reading that book and was really just blown away. It's uh, by Michael Pollan. And actually just this month, How to Change Your Mind came out on Netflix um, and it's doing incredibly well. Um, and really just kind of was surprised at what I was reading. Um, and just, and simultaneous with that, I started having a lot of doctors that I represent through my law firm reach out wanting to do psychedelic research and launch ketamine clinics. So I uh, started talking with some of those doctors, they started sharing some of the research they were working on. I was just blown away about what I was reading between how to change your mind and some of the research I was reading out of Imperial College of London, Johns Hopkins, NYU, Yale, um, it was showing tremendous efficacy with the great safety profile, all these different psychedelic compounds. So ended up diving into it, you know, really first working in my legal capacity, then launched my nonprofit, Mr. Psychedelic Law in 2019, uh, started investing in the space, started working with investors, and then ultimately April of 2021, launched my venture capital fund, uh, Eater Investments. And uh, we just recently closed a round of 20 million of capital, uh, have about 16 portfolio companies currently, and we're actively deploying capital into psychedelic companies. So what are the biggest, I guess, what are the biggest challenges that you face in terms of with the legal framework of cannabis along with psychedelics? And then also, I guess, second part of that question, if you could talk about the differences in terms of just what you do with, with Mr. Cannabis Law versus 
um, Mr. Psychedelic Law and just kind of the, the legal framework of cannabis versus psychedelics, how that comes into play, you know, when it comes to these different business ventures. Yeah, I mean, right now, um, the only state, you know, a lot of our, my investment fund, we focus on FDA clinical trials, you know, which is the, you know, proper federal pathway of getting these compounds approved and legalized. Uh, but Oregon just recently passed measure 109, which is the first legal framework for psychedelics. And it's quite unique from the cannabis framework and in, in the cannabis world, generally, uh, you're going to have retail stores that you pick up the cannabis and you're actually required by law to take it in private, um, basically at your home. Um, generally, there's not social consumption. Some states allow social consumption, but most of the time it's required. You pick it up at a retail store, you take it at home to consume it. It's actually the opposite under Measure 109 in Oregon and the way we're seeing some of these different bills in different states uh, it's quite different. It's rather than a retail store, you have a service center um, and then you also have a facilitator license. So when you if you want to consume psilocybin mushrooms in Oregon, you have to have them administered at the service center under the guidance of a licensed facilitator. Um, so there isn't at home use, at least not right now. Um, it all has to be done within a service center and under the guidance of a facilitator, which is far different on the cannabis side. I get a lot of calls through my law firm of people that want to start psychedelic brands. Um, and I explained to them, we're quite far off from having psychedelic brands, even in Oregon where it's legalized. You're not going to really see, in my opinion, uh, psychedelic products on the shelves and branded. Um, more likely, you're going to walk into a place much like a retreat or some sort of clinic and they will hand you uh, the psilocybin that you will then consume. So not really a consumer package good type of model right now. It's more of a service looking model and a hospitality looking model out in Oregon. So very, very different frameworks. Also what's unique about Oregon is in the cannabis space, it started off as medical and then eventually most of the states have gone to recreational. In Oregon, there's it's actually not a medical market, so you do not need a qualifying condition to access their psilocybin services, and you also do not need to be from the state of Oregon. Um, so we expect that this should hopefully bring in quite a bit of tourists into the state of Oregon uh, to access that psilocybin service program. So for the psilocybin service, like in Oregon, would it look similar to the ketamine clinics that we see? That have popped up in pretty much you know all different states now, or is there kind of a different framework that that or different appearance of of how those sessions might look? Well, there's a couple important things you need to keep in mind. Oregon, in Oregon, it's it's federally illegal still, much like cannabis, right? So it's not hasn't been FDA approved or anything. So these companies are operating much like cannabis companies, and that they're federally illegal. Um, as a result, I don't think you're going to see doctors. At these service centers, it's not going to be necessarily medical. Um, you're, it, it will be administered by facilitators, and these facilitators do not need a any sort of higher education. They just need to go through a training program uh, that has been approved by Oregon. So, um, 
One option is for it to look somewhat like a ketamine clinic, albeit without doctors, really just a facilitator. You come into a clinic and it gets, you know, most ketamine is done through IV or IM. Um, most likely, I think this will probably be in pill form. So you'll probably, you know, receive a, a psilocybin pill. Um, and then you're going to be on your trip for, you know, six to eight hours. Right now, ketamine is only one hour uh, for the most part. So it's a much much longer trip, which makes it look a lot different than a ketamine clinic because your therapist really needs to be available for, you know, six to eight hours. Um, but there's also different models, the service center models in, in Oregon, it's a lot of flexibility. So we're also seeing people want to do more of a retreat type model. So in that instance, it doesn't really look much like a ketamine clinic. It's more like you're going to a five day retreat with, you know, two or three of those days you're being administered psilocybin um, on their property. Um, so yeah, lots of different options out in Oregon. It's, it's really not, I, I wouldn't think of it as medical, um, which really makes it look a lot different than uh, what you're seeing at ketamine clinics. Okay. And then kind of going cross country from Oregon and, and you know, in Florida, I noticed that um, just doing my research on you, you were, you basically helped to, or you drafted and filed the Florida psilocybin legalization bill alongside um, one of the Florida state representatives. So tell me kind of what was the purpose or what is the purpose of that bill? And is that something that is going to kind of potentially replicate what we're seeing in, in Oregon with what we could be seeing in Florida or would it be a completely different landscape? Yeah, the purpose of that bill was really just to, to put it on people's radar. So we asked for everything in that bill. It was uh a big ask. We didn't expect it to get, um, you know, passed, but we really wanted to send a message and, and get the discussion started. And we were very successful in doing so. Um, got a lot of media coverage. Um, a lot of different government officials were reaching out, wanting to learn about it, wanting to talk about it. Then in the 2022 session, we, we did a much tailored back bill, which was really just around research. Um, so the goal in 2021 was to ask for everything, put it out there. This is like our end goal. But then 2022, we, we tailored it back a little bit and we're already looking at different options for bills in the next legislative session. I absolutely do believe Florida will be a player and have some um, legislation passed around this in the next couple of years. Um, and quite frankly, I'm just actually blown away by how... Uh, both sides of the aisle, both Republican and Democrat, are very interested in talking about this issue. The, the MDMA phase three clinical trials right now going on showed that two thirds of the participants in that trial were no longer clinically diagnosed with PTSD. That's absolutely incredible efficacy numbers. Um, and the idea that we could potentially help veterans with PTSD, two thirds of them um, statistically, hopefully two thirds of them with PTSD. Um, that's something that both sides of the aisle just can't ignore. So we've been talking a lot of them, quite frankly, the, the challenge, biggest challenge right now is just capital. My nonprofit has been self-funded. Um, I haven't brought in any outside capital realistically, if we really want to get stuff done. Um, I think, you know, if we were able to bring in two to $3 million through our nonprofit, um, I feel very, very confident that we could have extreme legal reform here in Florida. Everyone is interested in it. Um, there's a huge need. We're in this mental health crisis. These compounds are showing tremendous efficacy with a great safety profile. Um, but unfortunately, the FDA process just takes too long. 
And, you know, we have end of life patients that could be helped with these compounds. We have people suffering PTSD, depression, anxiety, a whole list of other mental and behavioral health indications. And, um, you know, we're investing through our fund in the clinical trial stuff. But the reality is, is that there's people suffering now. So if we could do something sooner, um, I think we could really help a lot of people. Awesome. And in terms of kind of the portfolio companies under under eaters, under eater investments, like what are some of the ones that kind of you're most excited about? Or just tell me about um, some of the ones that you guys have uh, have been kind of working with lately. Yeah, well, you know, we in when you're managing a portfolio, it's kind of like asking a father to pick their favorite child or they're, they're all you know, we, we like them all. Um, there's reasons we've selected them out of the, you know, hundreds of companies we've looked at. Um, but just to give you a couple examples, um, one of the companies we invested in is Solera. We were the lead investor uh, in their last round. We'll probably be leading this, this upcoming round as well. They're actually out of Tampa, Florida. Uh, they're the only company we've been able to invest in in Florida, but they're working out of USF. They were founded by two PhD chemists, and they have kind of two divisions of their uh, business. One is they're developing novel chemical entities that are psychedelic inspired. So they have uh, an AI um, algorithmic uh, chemistry, computational chemistry platform that is able to develop novel chemical entities. So, you know, a lot of people don't realize LSD and MDMA at the end of the day, they were made in a lab. Right. Um, and then a lot of that research and, and drug discovery kind of just went away. Um, but there's other incredible compounds that we could create that have not been discovered yet. Right. And so they're focused on kind of creating a new chemical entity, you know, the next LSD or the next MDMA. Um, and they have an incredible they, they're already produced a whole library of new chemical entities. And some of them are showing a lot of promise. The second side of their business is they have a patent on a transdermal DMT patch that they've developed and they're planning to take that through clinical trials. Um, so we work very closely with Solera. We actually have a board seat with them. Um, another company is Clairvoyant. Clairvoyant is doing psilocybin for alcohol use disorder um, and they're doing incredible work. They're already in phase two clinical trials. They just are dosing their first patient. Um, and we expect them to actually get the first approval of any psilocybin product worldwide. Um, they're currently on path to do so. So yeah, just a lot of different companies, mainly around drug discovery and drug development. Um, but we do have different investments also in virtual reality. Um, we have some of the ancillary services that we've invested in. For example, Fluence is a training company. They train therapists that are doing the clinical trials. We invested in Quantified Citizen. Uh, which is kind of a citizen science play uh, where basically people are able to uh, volunteer and be a part of observational research studies um, and various other investments. So we've really kind of uh, invested across the entire value chain and very excited for the potential of the industry. Going back to Solero, can you tell me like, so when you think about the potential like novel kind of research uh, chemicals or compounds that they might be able to create. Um, once those, if, if there was efficacy seen um, and those, uh, those drugs or medications got brought to market, 
are what are do you see a lot of legal challenges as far as that goes? I would assume they're if if they create novel compounds and they're not yet classified, right? They're not yet scheduled as a controlled substance. So is there is there kind of more flexibility and potential opportunities with those? The main the main challenge with NCEs is that um, with the traditional psychedelic compounds, we have a, a very, very long history of safety and quite a bit of research around efficacy. So phase one of clinical trials is really mainly about safety. Um, and so a lot of these traditional psychedelic compounds are actually able to either totally skip phase one clinical trials or get through them relatively quickly um, and go right into phase two clinical trials. With NCEs, there's a lot more work to be done, uh, both preclinical and clinical to prove uh, safety, you know, doing talk studies, stuff of that nature. Uh, so it is a, a longer road to develop NCEs, um, but you also do have better patent protection as well. Um, you know, in order to get a patent it has to be novel and non-obvious. Uh, the traditional psychedelic compounds, they're not novel or non-obvious. So there's not a lot of patent protection and, you know, companies are trying to be creative and creating some sort of a patent moat around those traditional psychedelics. But with the NCEs, they're completely novel and non-obvious compounds. So there's a lot more uh, patent protection. So that's on, on the positive side, more patent protection for the NCEs. On the negative side, it's just a longer road compared to some of the more traditional psychedelic compounds. How about in terms of MDMA? What do you see as sort of the, the trajectory of, of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, the legal challenges with that? Um, I know it's, it's going through, is it phase two or phase three of, of clinical trials right now, I think for, for PTSD? Like what what do you see kind of going forward? Is it going to look somewhat similar to ketamine clinics in, in terms of the application of that therapy or, or, and I guess if you could also speak as far as sort of the business opportunities in that space. Yeah. So MAPS is the sponsor on the phase three clinical trials for MDMA for PTSD. Um, they essentially, they're a public benefit court, but they essentially uh, function as a nonprofit in order to do these clinical trials, they've, they've gotten an incredible amount of capital and donations, but in order to take to the next step, they had to bring in some capital uh, from funds like ours. And so uh, they created a very creative uh, financial vehicle. They created an SPV where it's a 6.1% rev share on all sales of MDMA. Um, and so our fund is actually an investor in that SPV. So we have a 6.1% rev share uh, as MDMA gets commercialized. So we're expecting, like I mentioned, it's in phase three clinical trials. We're expecting the final readouts to come out in November. I think that would be quite an inflection point for the industry. Um, and then we are hoping for approval in 2023 and then commercialization in 2024. Uh, it is... Currently, you know, things are all being negotiated with the FDA on, you know, how many therapists, how specific do the protocols really need to be, how much flexibility could you give the therapist. But what it's looking like right now is that there's going to have to be, uh, it's quite an extensive protocol, the MDMA psychedelic assisted therapy. There's preparation, administ multiple administration, multiple integration sessions. It's uh, quite a, a, a lengthy protocol. 
Um, and MDMA lasts, you know, quite a bit of time, six to eight hours, much like psilocybin. Uh, but in contrast to ketamine, that only lasts an hour. So I think, you know, these facilities, it, it is a different type of infrastructure uh, for MDMA as compared to, to, to ketamine. Uh, but I do think a lot of these ketamine clinics are hoping that they'll be able to do MDMA psychedelic assisted therapy once it gets approved. The, the biggest bottleneck right now is going to be getting enough therapists trained to do this therapy. I think there's going to be tremendous demand for MDMA. It's an incredible drug, um, really has the ability to turn down your amygdala, which is responsible like for fear and emotion and allows you to you know, your amygdala to turn down. So you're able to kind of, and at the same time, it, it, it turns up, you know, different memories of the past. So you're able to access the, the, the memories and some of the trauma that you've had, but without all the emotion and fear around it. And really all you're going to feel is, you know, for the most part, if you, if you read the studies and what's happening there, that you just have immense love and understanding and openness. And so you're able to uh, look at those situations really from a place of love as opposed to a place of fear. Um, and that's why they're getting, you know, such tremendous results right now. Um, but as a result, it's just, uh, it's there's going to be a lot of demand for it, but I think the the biggest bottleneck is going to be you know enough therapists getting trained to deliver this type of therapy. And just to clarify what you were saying about maps and their their sort of patent on MDMA in terms of so so they're basically going to be responsible for to getting that medication to getting that drug out to any clinics that are going to then start using it for the MDMA assisted psychotherapy. Is that correct? So MAPS does not have any sort of patent position. So you mentioned patents. They're, they're, they're very much about full access, but they do, since they'll have the first approval, they have something called data exclusivity. So I think it's like seven to eight years, depending on which jurisdiction you're in, uh, where you have exclusivity as to the data for um, MDMA. So only they're going to be able to essentially distribute it. So they're the sponsor on it. So they own it. It's their drug. It's a it's going to be a MAPS drug and they will be able to determine, you know, what clinics they pro provide it to um, and how it's administered. So it's being approved isn't just MDMA, it's MDMA psychedelic assisted therapy. So it's MDMA in conjunction with this very specific protocol that MAPS has come up with. So MAPS is probably going to be training these therapists and certifying the sites in which this will be delivered. Um, so MAPS will be the supplier and they will hopefully be supplying it to the clinics that will be delivering it. Does that clarify what you were asking? Yes, absolutely. And so in terms of like with, with MDMA, I guess also psilocybin still being like schedule one compounds, does the federal government, like if they wanted to step in, even if it, you know, once MDMA is hopefully approved, you know, for PTSD treatment, same with like psilocybin, would the federal government be able to shut down clinics? Would they be able to do like raids of clinics like we've heard about, you know, in states where they've kind of legalized cannabis? Does that a concern so so there's so there's two agencies at play in this question so there's the dea which is their job is to you know enforce 
you know, crime around drugs. And then there's the FDA, which is responsible for assessing whether or not drugs are effective and safe such that they could be approved as a pharmaceutical. Once the FDA approves these compounds, once they approve MDMA as an FDA approved drug, it then goes to the DEA and the DEA I think has 90 days to reschedule it. So this is kind of similar to what happened with Epidiolex. Right now, cannabis is still schedule one. Epidiolex is a highly concentrated version of CBD, which is a cannabinoid within cannabis plant. And once it got approved by the FDA, it went to the DEA, and then Epidiolex was specifically carved out and rescheduled. So similarly, that's what you could expect to happen. There's also, I think, like 24, 26 states that don't automatically adopt the federal scheduling program. So even after the DEA reschedules, we're still going to have to lobby some of these states to ensure that they reschedule um, MDMA and it could be legally delivered. So once it gets FDA approved, DEA reschedules, it's just a normal pharmaceutical drug that could be delivered, uh, you know, people could write prescriptions for and, you know, deliver it under the MAPS protocol. What about in terms of like, I'm glad you brought up uh, Epidiolex and just like how kind of the DEA saw the, you know, the cannabis legality and, and turned it into kind of like a pharmaceutical that from the research I've seen doesn't have nearly as much efficacy as just you know, the, the raw cannabis plant consuming that, um, is that like a concern as far as like, say, I guess it's different with some of these, uh, these chemicals from a lab like MDMA, but what about like for psilocybin or for magic mushrooms in terms of once that became approved and it's going through the, through the DEA reclassification, is it just going to be psilocybin or mushrooms as like, the mushrooms as a whole, like in the sense of, you know, if there's all these other compounds interacting with psilocybin in the mushrooms, it's giving it its full kind of therapeutic effect, but then we only have like psilocybin legalized. Like, is that, is that a potential problem going forward? Um, so, I mean, just to be clear, most of what is being uh, researched right now is synthetic psilocybin, so compass pathways in phase two clinical trials. I mentioned clairvoyant is in phase two clinical trials. So most likely what will get rescheduled is the specific drug that gets approved. So if compass gets an approval on their polymorph A form of uh, psilocybin, it will probably be their drug that gets reclassified and, you know, magic mushrooms will continue to be schedule one um, after that's approved. So, you know, right now the research is on, you know, psilocybin or I, you're kind of referencing like the entourage effect. Um, there's not really much research going on with respect to, you know, any sort of entourage effect. Uh, much more complicated to do clinical trials around multiple compounds and how they interact with one another. Um, and so, yeah, most of the research right now is specific to psilocybin. Okay. So what other kind of like upcoming projects or, uh, you know, kind of venture capital things do you see yourself kind of being a part of as I assume more and more companies in, in this cannabis and psychedelic space continue to emerge? Um, 
Well, we're doing a lot. Um, on the cannabis side, I actually just launched, uh, I, I created, there, there's a huge undersupply of well-trained attorneys in the cannabis space, and I find it to be a problem. And my law firm, I really don't have intentions on hiring hundreds of people and training them. I like to stay small. So what I've done is I've created a coursework. Um, it's like, I think eight video classes comes with a textbook comes with a bunch of different templates for cannabis contracts. So we just launched that. So I'm excited to, you know, get, get a lot of attorneys trained on properly uh, practicing in the cannabis space. I think it'll help the industry. Um, we also are seeing Florida. We, I think we'll hopefully come online in November, December for a new round of licensing for cannabis. Um, so my law firm is heavily involved in that. Um, on the psychedelic side, uh, we just closed our, our $20 million round. We're focused on you know, continuing to support our portfolio companies. We're working very closely with them. Um, and then one of our companies, uh, Nucleus, will be launching a, a Reg CF. So we're going to be doing a crowdfunding. So I think it'll be a unique opportunity uh, for really unaccredited investors, anyone who's interested in, in investing in one of the most robust uh, incubators in the psychedelic industry, uh, we're going to allow basically the public to, to invest in it um, on a crowdfunding platform. So we should be launching that in the next couple of weeks. So very excited for that. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, a lot of time spent trying to make sure our companies are well capitalized. It's a tough time in the market. So just trying to ensure that our portfolio companies have sufficient capital to push forward. Do you view, I, I know you just referenced it being kind of a tough time in the market, but kind of when you look at the timeline of just with COVID and obviously the mental health crisis, just kind of coming to the forefront and then kind of the psychedelic boom, like kind of right at the same time. I mean, do you see this as kind of, uh, you know, did, did everything kind of amplify because of the, the pandemic? Well, what we saw in the market for psychedelics is, you know, obviously the pandemic exacerbated the mental health crisis. And, uh, you know, a lot of the research was proving very strong for psychedelics. And so we saw a huge spike in valuations and the amount of companies entering the psychedelic space, a lot of money poured into it. And then in about... Uh, March of, of this year, uh, with everything going on from a macroeconomic perspective with, you know, what's going on in Russia, interest rates, inflation, uh, macroeconomic factors started trickling into the psychedelic industry and, you know, right now and the biotech industry in general. So right now, um, you know, valuations are down quite a bit. I think the S&P biotech index is down like almost 60% since February. Um, so yeah, valuations are down, um, less capital is flowing in. Uh, it's a challenging time, but at the end of the day, this is, uh, this is kind of what's needed in an industry. It's going to kind of uh, funnel out some of the companies that weren't based on the strongest data and science. Um, companies are coming down to realistic valuations. So for an investor like myself, it's good opportunity to invest capital and get in at reasonable valuations. Um, but the science remains strong, you know, despite what's happening in the market, 
the, from a scientific perspective, it's been unaffected. Science does not care about markets. Science is science. And the science remains extremely strong. And that, that, that's our thesis around the industry is that these, these, uh, these compounds will be transformational for mental and behavioral health indications. And so as long as the science continues to prove out, um, we continue to have very strong conviction around the industry. What sort of like advice do you give to people or businesses involved that are wanting to get involved or have gotten involved in the cannabis and psychedelic industries? And then I guess also kind of part of that question, you know, what, what specifically as an investor, what, what different things do you look for uh, that a company is needs to kind of check what boxes do they need to check off in order you know, for you to decide, yes, you know, this is a, this is a company that I'm going to invest in. Yeah. I mean, really we look at the team um, and being that we're investing in, in really biotech companies. I mean, the fact that the it's psychedelic is almost irrelevant. It's, these are biotech companies. So you need a team that's very familiar and has a track record and taking drugs through clinical trials um, and so we want to make sure that, you know, we're not looking for, you know, cannabis operators. We're looking for a team of biotech professionals that have done this before. Um, and then we're, you know, usually looking at strong IP position. Um, so we're, we do quite a bit of diligence around that. And then it's usually strategy from there. You know, what, what is their strategy? So those are kind of the different aspects we look at um, in particular when we're looking at a drug development company. But like I said, we have invested in a lot of different types of businesses. So it really just depends the, the business. For example, on the VR side, we have a couple companies taking their VR platforms uh, through FDA clinical trials as a digital therapeutic. So, you know, having a team that's strong in, in VR, but also strong in the, the process for taking a digital therapeutic through FDA clinical trials is, is key as well. Um, so yeah, different aspects for different types of businesses. Got it. Got it. Now I wanted to transition a little bit just to talking about kind of, um, you know, people that, you know, as, as kind of this, the psychedelic boom and the reemergence of, of all these different tools has kind of popped back up into public awareness and more and more people are learning about the potential efficacy of these these tools, you know, as you know, therapeutic entities. And before, you know, say before we start seeing MDMA clinics or psilocybin clinics or these compounds actually being able to be kind of dispensed in a therapeutic, psychedelic assist, assisted therapeutic environment, it seems that as though there might be more and more people who are going to want to attain these and potentially, you know, use them, you know, quasi therapeutically, recreationally, whatever you want to call it. Like, what do you see in terms of the, the legal framework? Obviously people have gotten locked up for, you know, years and years and years for, you know, cannabis possession in certain States. I know similar things can occur with, with psychedelics. Like, what do you tell, other attorneys, you were mentioning working with other attorneys in the cannabis space, like what, what sort of advice do you give um, to them in terms of kind of helping people that, you know, do get stuck in, in situations where they get caught with, you know, a psychedelic in a place that it's not legal? 
Yeah, well, you know, the part of the war on drugs, the problem with it, you know, LSD was having tremendous breakthroughs with research and the doctors that were researching it were extremely excited about it. But and then it got into, um, you know, it kind of got into the hippie counter counterculture hands and, you know, they started using it um, not in a clinical setting. Very similar story with MDMA. Um, where it started getting used outside the clinical setting. And that really was just a dagger in the heart of um, the clinical trials that were going on because then we had the war on drugs in the 70s. So it's very important that these compounds um, are not, you know, being used outside of the pharmaceutical context. Um, and I think, and it's always, you know, there's already a black market. Um, so, you know, people are going to use these compounds and I'm certainly not opposed to people, you know, using these compounds for, you know, consciousness expansion and however they might want to. Um, but as far as like the, that the MAPS MDMA drug getting in the hands into others, not really realistic because the way this current paradigm is structured is you don't take home this MDMA. You go into the, the clinic, the MDMA is delivered at the clinic and you go home with no MDMA. So the likelihood of it being misappropriated um, or put into the wrong hands is, is much less likely compared to let's say opiates where you know someone gets a prescription, they take them home um, and then they could potentially distribute them out to other individuals and sell them on the black market. How about in, in terms of if, if you kind of had the ultimate say, I mean, you know, you look at countries, I think, Portugal, you know, legalized, I think pretty much all drugs. Um, and just like kind of looking, looking to those other kind of models of, of just dealing with um, drug legality. If, if you were able to, I mean, do you think it would be a smart idea to just legalize all, you know, psychedelics, like in the same way that say cannabis is legalized in states where it's recreational, or do we need to still have these sort of like medical, um, you know, constrictions, frameworks, and not let it get into, you know, as you're saying, people's hands that, um, you know, could potentially abuse or, or just misuse these compounds. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm a big believer in these compounds having tremendous potential for people without clinical indications, right? Just simple mind expansion, problem solving, creativity, spirituality, I think there's a lot that can be done with these compounds outside of the clinic. Um, but with that being said, we need to make sure we are very cognizant of the history of these drugs and kind of what's happened in the history. And we these are powerful compounds. That means they could be used for good, but powerful also means they could be used in, in negative ways, right? And you know, you're in a different state of mind when taking these compounds. So it's important that we create the right container um, to manage it. So if you ask me uh, if tomorrow, if I could have my way and just have all psychedelics legalized, anyone could sell them, no licensing structure, just go out, grossocybin, you could sell it at the grocery store. Um, I'd be opposed to that. I think it needs to be a slow rollout, much like what Oregon's doing. They're kind of creating this very tight container. Um, and then slowly you could start taking the guardrails off of that container. Same thing with the maps 
uh, clinical trials. It's starting off very much to therapists, very therapist heavy, a lot of protocols. But I think as they feel more comfortable with the safety and tolerability of MDMA, hopefully some of those guardrails will expand to some extent. So um, that's kind of my position on it. I'd love to see these available for, you know, to everyone, not just for indications, um, but it needs to be done in a responsible way. And, and we need to have the research. There could be certain populations that don't respond well. Certainly there's people with bad trips. Now, whether that was due to the set and setting or that actual person's genetic makeup, uh, you know, I don't know. But I'm, I'm always a proponent of, of research. And so I think the more research we do on these drugs and the more we understand them, uh, the more comfortable we'll start to get with the proper set setting and container we need around it. Awesome. Well, Dustin, we're coming up onto the end of the show. Any, any other pieces of this, just of this entire conversation that, uh, that you'd like to add that we haven't touched on yet? Um, no, nothing specifically. I think, uh, you know, very exciting times for the industry. I think, you know, research is going to continue to prove out, hopefully, and we should get MDMA approved in 2023. Um, I think Clairvoyant, our portfolio company, could have psilocybin approved for alcohol use disorder by 2025. Um, then we have a bunch of other compounds coming in right behind it, DMT, mescaline, uh, peyote, uh, 5-MeO-DMT, uh, and then also some of the psychedelic analogs and the new chemical entities as well. So lots of, lots of excitement, exciting stuff going on around the space. And, uh, you know, we're watching the markets closely and, you know, we're just hopeful more capital, more capital will start flowing into the industry so that we could continue these, these research programs. Absolutely. Definitely super exciting time for, for the industry. Uh, if people want to find out more about, you know, Mr. Cannabis Law, Mr. Psychedelic Law, or ETER Investments, where would you direct people to, or if they want to connect with you? Yeah, if anyone wants to connect, welcome to email me, uh, Dustin at eterinvestments.com. That's D-U-S-T-I-N at I-T-E-R investments.com. Awesome. We'll definitely uh, put the link to that in uh, the show notes. And for those listeners who enjoyed the show today, if you can give us a, a review on Apple Podcasts, five-star rating, that'd be greatly appreciated. Share the show with a friend. We're on pretty much all major audio streaming platforms. And you can also find uh, the YouTube uh, podcast clips along with full episodes on our YouTube channel at Neuroflex. So Dustin, I wanted to really thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be here.